Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 325th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Healthy food is something everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious, and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Today on our podcast, we have someone who felt prompted to do more than just grow her own food. We're talking to Liz Whitehurst about starting a new small farm. Liz is the owner and operator of Owl's Nest Farm, a small-scale diversified vegetable farm 15 miles outside of Washington, D.C. Before starting her farm, she worked on a wide variety of farms and gardens as a grower and educator, including the Arcadia Center for Sustainable Agriculture and Angelic Organics Learning Center. Owl's Nest Farm grows unique, delicious, nutritious, diverse vegetables, herbs, flowers, and fruit on four acres. Liz was recently featured in a Washington Post article about how young farmers are changing the food system. Welcome to the show today, Liz. Are you ready to rock the farm? Yes, I'm so ready. Sweet. So I shared a little bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us? Sure. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Actually, it's sort of an exurban place where as I grew up, there was more and more suburban development that replaced mostly large scale conventional farms. Mm -hmm. But I was definitely a suburban kid, definitely a first generation farmer. I went away to college in upstate New York. I have a degree in peace and conflict studies. And there I focused specifically on social justice and social movements. And through that education, got a really strong sense of how pervasive injustices and how it's embedded in all these different systems that are part of our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. And I was super overwhelmed and wanted to find a way to make impacts that were positive, particularly in the context of learning about my privilege as a white person and as a middle-class person. I wanted to be really careful about how I did it. And when I was in college, I was not only learning about all these oppressions, but I also was doing some local work, anti-hunger work, 
I worked, volunteered at a food bank and I worked at a drop-in center for homeless women and then also started working at a health food store. And when I started working at that health food store, I started eating a lot better and felt mm, a lot better. Yes. And I realized, oh, but the food that I'm feeding people in need is not the kind of food that is going to make them feel better. And I just want everybody to have the opportunity to eat food that makes them feel good. So I did some more sort of office-based food nonprofit work when I first graduated from college. And I found that working in the office was not for me. <laughs> I kind of jumping out of my skin. Mm -hmm. So then when I got a call from a friend who was managing a farm in upstate New York, she said, oh, come in for an intern for me this summer. I jumped at the chance to do it. And that was in 2009. And I've been doing work on farms and in gardens ever since. Before I started my own farm, I worked in urban gardens and in farm-based education. So mm -hmm. teaching other people about how to grow their own food and playing with goats and kids at summer camps and all kinds of fun stuff like that. And then in 2016, the beginning of 2016, I started my own farm, Owl's Nest Farm. Part of that story is that my previous CSA farmer, so somebody that I was buying a CSA from back mm -hmm. in 2010, she decided she didn't want to farm anymore. She had a child and wanted to move on. So I sort of bought her farm operation. Oh, nice. Yeah, which was great. It gave me an opportunity to become a full-time farmer in a lot quicker timeline than I otherwise would have. She had, over that time, built up some great infrastructure for a small-scale farm, a cooler, a greenhouse, a harvest wash pack station, a high tunnel. So because she was leaving farming altogether, I was able to kind of buy this package of equipment and infrastructure from her, as well as her crop plan and soil amendment records and even her CSA member list. So I was really able to kind of jump right in and become a full-time farmer much more quickly than otherwise. So that was in 2016 was the first year of Owl's Nest Farm. We're finishing up our second season in production. And mostly, you know, we're wrapped up for the season, but we are still harvesting some winter greens and selling some root vegetables. And in just a few weeks, we'll be done for 2017. Wow. That is quite the journey. Yeah. You really, really lucked out by being able to purchase all that because a, a big part of getting one of these started is the challenge of getting all the infrastructure in place, is it not? It really is, yeah. I think one of the biggest things that is maybe overlooked. I think it's easy to look at like a cooler is a specific infrastructure piece, but really one of the most helpful things is the crop plan. You know, oh. she worked out how many plantings of tomatoes, how many plantings of zucchini, about what week of the year do you plant each of these things, about how much of each yeah. of these things do you plant. And that would have taken me two, three, four, five years to really hone in on that. And every year we take a look at that crop plan and we make adjustments based on what went well and what didn't, what people liked and what people didn't. But it really helped to have those, you know, the records and that those pieces in place, a place to jump off from. Yeah. Well, that's really your planting calendar, right? Yeah, exactly. Wow. How cool is that? So I arrive at your farm and I'm driving down the driveway and I park. What am I going to see? Well, I actually want to back up a little bit because actually a neat thing about my farm is where we're located. So we're in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So the Beltway is this highway that goes around D.C. and it's sort of famous. People talk about inside and outside the Beltway when they talk about U.S. Capitol and the centers of power there. So we're just five miles away from that Beltway. So you will, on the way to my farm, pass a lot of suburban development. Uh -huh. of 
we just got a new gas station. There's subdivisions nearby. But I am lucky to be leasing some land that has been in agriculture for over 100 years. It was historically a tobacco farm. Wow. And then just, and most of the land that my land lord owns is actually a conventional corn and soy farm so you would see some of that as you drove up and you might be like i thought i was going to an organic farm but if you kind of come through the trees then you'll see my few acres of vegetables including our two high tunnels as well as some wild space we're actually working on putting in a pollinator garden on the one side and you know also just we have some wild patches around but mostly you'll see lots of rows of colorful diverse vegetables you know, we grow things in rows and our beds are pretty standardized. So it looks like a farm, and but it also looks like a diverse one. A lot of the land around us is monoculture. So just corn and corn and corn or soy and soy and soy mm -hmm. as far as the eye can see. But ours is sort of this little bright spot of diversity. Cool. And what are you growing on your farm? Right. So we have a CSA. So that means that we have a lot of diversity, right? People who join a CSA don't want turnips every week. Mm -hmm. So we grow something like 50 different crops, but some of the most popular things that we grow are we grow a lot of tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes in particular, and cherry tomatoes. And then we also grow a lot of greens, a lot of kale, salad greens. We have this really delicious spicy salad mix, for example. Also all the kinds of everybody's favorite summer crops like zucchini and cucumbers. We do lots of sweet potatoes. We do great potatoes, melons. I could go on. <laughs> Also, radishes and turnips. Yeah, I could go on and on. We, we grow a lot of different things. Cool. And for those of our, our listeners that don't know what a CSA is, tell us what that means and how do you run one? CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and I like to call it a relationship between a farmer and an eater. And the kind of the core of that relationship is that the eater pays the farmer in advance, and then in exchange, that eater gets a share of the produce that the farmer's growing. And there's all kinds of forms that it takes. In our case, between the middle of May and the end of October, we bring shares to community drop spots in Washington, D.C once a week and we do it we call it market style so we lay out everything that we have and we put up a list of what you can take and people kind of pack their own oh, shares Oh, nice yeah it helps us because we don't have to pack those boxes and it also allows us to give those eaters some flexibility so we usually have about eight items usually about half of those items there's a choice so instead of just saying okay you get turnips you get a choice. You might want a bunch of radishes or a bunch of turnips, or you might want some tomatillos, or you might want some okra. And that gives us some flexibility so that if you don't really like okra, you can pick tomatillos, for example. Mm -hmm. And then we also do another kind of take on the CSA concept that we do on our farm is that we are also at a farmer's market in DC. We have kind of a debit account system. So people pay us in advance again, but then they just visit us at the farmer's market each week and they can take whatever they want and they just draw down on their uh. debit account. So that is another option where there's a ton of flexibility. People can come whenever they want and they can take whatever they want. But kind of the core of that relationship is that we get the money in advance, which is great for us because we can buy the things that we need when we need them. Mm -hmm. Like just bought a thousand dollars worth of potting soil this week. So, all right. and then soon we'll do a big seed order and all kinds of other improvements that we want to make. We want to do that work in our case, kind of in the off season during the winter. And that's when it's really helpful to have some people who've invested in the farm in advance. And th that way also we know who we're growing for. We know a little bit about what we're growing, what they like. 
So in order to grow for a CSA, there are a lot of wonderful things and there are a lot of challenges. One of the biggest things for CSA is the diversity. Like I said, people don't want turnips every week. Mm -hmm. So we really have to be able to grow all kinds of different things. Right. At the same time. And also plan so that we have them on a consistent basis. Mm. So in our case, an example of that is, you know, we have really bad fungal problems with tomatoes. If we just planted one set of tomatoes, one planting of tomatoes at the end of May, then they would be dead in July and we wouldn't have any tomatoes in July and August and September. So we plan to have tomatoes consistently, which means we plant tomatoes three or four different times throughout the course of the season. So that way we can have a consistent product during the tomato season. So we, so we kind of plan for knowing that that's something that our CSA members are going to want. But it's also a challenge because tomatoes have one set of needs. Carrots that we plant during tomato season have mm -hmm. a totally different set of needs. So it is wearing a lot of different hats, but that diversity, I think, is also part of our ethic. We don't want to have a monoculture farm. We want our farm to be more like an ecosystem, and you certainly never see monoculture ecosystem. So it also gives us a way to uh, just like have a lot of fun challenges. I don't, I don't want to be a monocultural farmer, not just because I don't believe in it, but also because I find the challenge of growing a bunch of different crops fun and exciting. Right. So why is that important? You mean diversity? Yeah. When we think about the kinds of ecosystems that we want, right, and the kinds of communities we want to, we don't think about just one kind of person or just one kind of plant. We want diversity in our ecosystems and in our communities because all different kinds of creatures and plants give us all different kinds of things. They give us all different kinds of nutrients for our bodies, and they can fit all different kinds of niches in an ecosystem. One thing that's important for us in terms of, I guess, the CSA business model as well is that we might have a terrible year for say winter squash this was a great this year was a great example of a bad year for winter squash mm -hmm. but it turned out we had a pretty good year for sweet potatoes so we could kind of patch that in in terms of the csa so the having a wide range of crops means that we can deal with a wide range of weather because all different kinds of crops like all different kinds of weather right also for example a great tomato year because we didn't have a ton of rain at the wrong time and that's kind of what a csa member buys into right there's this shared risk and reward mm -hmm. concept so you share the risk that, oh, you might not get winter squash this year, but you also share the reward. You might get a whole bunch of tomatoes, which mm. is something that happened with our CSA members this year. And I don't think anyone was unhappy about it. Yeah, nobody was complaining about that. Exactly. One of the things that you kind of touched on in what you've been talking about is what I call successive planting. Mm -hmm. In fruit trees, we do successive ripening so that we're getting peaches that ripen in you know, May, June, and July here. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this successive planting and what that means. So it means something different for different crops. In our case, we do a lot of salad greens, both for CSA, well, for CSA restaurants and for the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. So we are planting in the spring salad greens every other week. And in the fall, we plant them more like every week. 
Wow. It's so hot here in the summer. We kind of take a six week break for salad greens that just the heat is too much for them. So we plant them a lot. So we're sure to consistently have a supply. Whereas for zucchini and cucumbers, we plant those this year. I did three plantings next year. I'm going to do four because I know growing those organically, the pests are going to get to them. I'm going to get bacterial wilt. They're just going to die off. Hopefully I get four weeks of harvest off of them. If I've planned my successions right then as soon as the production starts to slow down on those zucchini and cucumbers my next succession will be ready almost hopefully going gangbusters so i continue to have a pretty consistent supply of say zucchini and cucumbers and that's true for all of our crops i'm trying to think of except you know something like sweet potatoes we plant once in may and then we're we do one big harvest. Although, you know, we might harvest chunks of the field. So we have them for a couple of, you know, fresh ones for a few different weeks. Yeah, exactly. Wow. You have put a lot of thought into this. This is quite the project. How did you figure all of this out? You're right. It's really complex. And we haven't even been talking about like the, all these different plants have different water needs and the, oh my, oh my gosh, gosh, the right. weeds, forget about it with the weeds and, and the pests. So all of these pieces really do have to work in synchronicity and it's a whole, whole lot of work. I think one of the biggest things is trial and error. And I haven't been great about this this year, but keeping good records, writing down mm. what worked and what didn't. Mm -hmm. So I can one. say Oh yeah, like the end of August, I thought that I was, I, I really needed one more succession of zucchini and cucumbers because by the end of August, this third one was dead. So I, I, if I'm going to have them in September, I'm definitely going to need to plant a fourth succession next year. That's one thing. And I think the other thing is I just plant a lot. <laughs> I <laughs> we usually work into the crop plan about 30%. We just like put a factor of 30% more than we think we're going to need. Mm. And Sometimes we end up with the great problem that we have a bunch of extra produce and then we end up trying to find somebody that wants it. Usually we're working with restaurants to right. figure out, hey, can you handle a kind of a glut of tomatoes this week? You know, often we get about what we need when we just plan for extra. And luckily we have some space to do that. Nice. You used the word earlier. You've actually used it a couple of times called a high tunnel. Oh, yeah. Tell me what that is. So in our case, it's an unheated season extension structure. So it's basically like a big old greenhouse. And some people heat their high tunnels. Ours are unheated. And it's basically big wire hoops covered in plastic. And we use it for season extension in kind of two ways. One is it's December and it's about 32 degrees out. There's actually snow on the ground, but we have greens that are warm, salad greens that are warm in our high tunnel. Mm. So when I was harvesting pounds and pounds of salad greens this week for restaurant sales. So they, that gives us a way to grow crops longer into the winter because we have a covered area, an area that stays warm. And then we also use it to start summer crops early, in particular tomatoes, we plant them early so that we have them. We're kind of first to the market. Hopefully we have tomatoes late June, early yeah. July, because we planted them early into the high tunnel when it was too cold to plant them outside. Wow. Cool. 
and actually I should say we got our most recent we just added just built one this fall through a grant from the National Resource Conservation Service and that it's a federal program and people in communities all over have the opportunity you have to go through a lot of paperwork and work with your local extension office local office of the NRCS mm -hmm. but there's money out there for people who want high tunnels uh, to be built on their farm wow well that's cool so you got featured in the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. That's how I found you, by the way. And congratulations. It was an extraordinary article. How did that happen? Thank you. So there's this thing called the National Young Farmers Coalition, mm -hmm. which is an advocacy group working on federal legislation to make the world friendlier for young farmers help us succeed. And so they did a survey of their membership at the beginning of the year, and they put it all together in a package, and they were mm. looking for people to cover it, especially in advance of the farm bill. There's a legislative action coming up next year on the farm bill. And so they were wanting to get ahead of that and start the conversation about what can the federal government do to better serve young farmers. And they were talking to reporters about their survey and one Caitlin Duffy is the reporter at the Washington Post who works on agricultural policy, uh -huh. and she was interested in doing a story about some of the trends that the Young Farmer Report found, and she said, find me a young farmer who fits the demographics that you guys found in your survey. So that is female. There's more and more female farmers they found. They found there are more and more first generation farmers. Mm -hmm. So that means, you know, like my parents didn't farm, my grandparents didn't farm. Yep more and more people who are farming who had a college education. I fit into that demographic that the National Young Farmers Coalition survey found was happening all over the country. And so they connected me with, and I, and I served DC and it was the Washington Post. So wow. they connected me with Caitlin and she and a photographer came out and visited my farm and we chatted a bunch. And then she wrote the story that you read. Nice. Well, I'll tell you, after chatting with you for a little over 23 minutes, I can see why they wanted to talk to you, number one. And number two, you know your stuff. So congratulations. I'm Thank really you. proud of you. Yeah. And there's always more to learn. Every time I think I've, oh, I'm like, oh, I got this. <laughs> I find out about something new I should learn more about. There you go. I'm, I'm 56. I'm a lifelong learner. I love to learn. That's why we offer education through Urban Farm U. And I'm 100% in there with you. Yeah. So I'm going to shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. So one thing I want to say is I have failed a whole, whole, whole lot. Then you're learning a lot, right? Exactly. I could name 27 different failures from this season alone off the top of my head. One was last year we planted a whole new strawberry field and then we mulched it with straw and then we uncovered it in the spring and it turned out we had over mulched it. We had put too thick a layer in it and the decomposition process had heated up so much that it fried all those oh. new strawberry plants that we had planted. It was so many strawberry plants. It was so sad and everyone loves strawberries so it was extra, extra sad. That's just one example, like I said, and I think one of the things that I learned from that is, first of all, don't beat yourself up too much. That's a big one. Especially as a CSA farmer, the pressure is on. People give you their money in advance, and so you're, I've got to deliver, right? Yeah. So that can really, that I definitely can lose sleep over things like a lost strawberry planting. And because I'm also a business owner, right? This is my livelihood, and so I've got a lot of skin in the game. But at the same time, if I'm going to 
continue to get back up and in this case replant strawberries, I can't beat myself up too much and have to just keep going. And mm -hmm. that's the other thing I think is really important about making mistakes is just try again. I just have to, and in my case, it's often like just keep planting. And the last thing is just to observe as quickly as possible. So be consistently about your observations mm -hmm. so that you can redirect if you need to. So we discovered that we had made that mistake and quick ordered new strawberry plants and replanted them. But if we had, you know, left that strawberry field and never went back, then we wouldn't have known that we had to go ahead and replant it. Yeah. Well, that's really, that's the reason I asked this question is so that people can see that we can make mistakes and things don't always work out right. And you just got to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just got to keep going. And there's what other choice do you have? You could give up, but then you'd miss out on all the fun of doing it. <laughs> How true is that? So what do you consider your biggest success? So right now, I my biggest success is also a work in progress. I make a living as a full-time farmer which is huge. Not everybody gets to do that. And right. so I consider that a huge success, but I also recognize that got to keep working at it in order to become a better farmer and to continue to be able to do this as my job. Cool. And what drives you? I really like working. Farming is really hard and it takes a whole lot of hard work. I have not been tracking my hours, but I work a lot of hours. And But really it's because I enjoy the work that I do and I get a lot of satisfaction from seeing the work that I do sort of flourish. And that's one thing, one thing that drew me to farming initially and has sort of sustained my interest in it is that instead of you know, being at a computer and sending a bunch of emails. And that's what I did that day. And I do do some email work, but I also can, you know, weed a bed of carrots and see, oh my gosh, look at how beautiful this looks after I'm done with it. Or I can harvest a whole field of tomatoes and just bask in the glory of all these beautiful tomatoes. So kind of having seen that direct impact of my work mm -hmm. is something that I really love about farming and that continues to drive me. Yeah. Well, and you're literally feeding people. Yeah. And that's really true. I think, you know, that's part of the reason of all the ways that I could sell produce that I grow. One of the reasons that I really like CSA is it's a sustained relationship. So mm -hmm. I see the faces of the people that I grow food for every week and we can talk about what recipes they use to you know, deal with that glut of tomatoes. And we can talk about what their kids like to eat and what we might do differently next year. And those relationships are super nourishing for me as a farmer. So I have a kind of a off the wall question to ask you. Yeah. How does it make you feel to do this? One of the things I think is it makes me feel tired a lot, right? At the end of the day, I am tired, but it's a different kind of tired mm -hmm. than say, like I, I don't want to keep going back to the computer, but you know, that's a lot of people's jobs is sitting at a computer all day. And that sort of, it feels like that's almost like for me, that was sort of a sense of spiritual exhaustion. Yeah. And I'm at the end of the day, I feel physically exhausted most days, but I feel spiritually nourished. Does that make sense? Absolutely. How long have you been running Owl's Nest Farm? So this is, we just finished our second year in production. Great. So I want you to think back over the past two years and something happened that when it happened, you knew down to your toes that this is what you were supposed to be doing. Something epic happened. Think about that. What was it? 
There's a couple of different things. Uh-huh. One thing is there is this boy named Paul who shops with us at the farmer's market, and he really loves the pea shoots that we grow. And one week I didn't have them because I had sold them all to a restaurant that week. I was hoping to sell more of different kinds of salad greens. And he was really upset about not getting his pea shoots. And so he went the next week to that restaurant and said, hey, you have to share, chef. You need to share. <laughs> You took all those pea shoots. I want pea shoots too. And then that chef, you know, texted me and said, oh, it's okay to sell some pea shoots to Paul this week. But that was a, like just a great story that I showed one thing, which is, you know, having those relationships with people that yeah. I sell food to is really important, both the chef and the, I think he's five. And I think the other piece of it was also that this kid is growing up with like pea shoots as his favorite food. How cool is that? How many like five-year-old kids did you know that are like that persistent about getting their pea shoots right. rather than, you know, lots of other things that five-year-old kids like to eat. And the other thing is just so often I am working till very late till it's getting dark. And just there's often just a moment when the day transitions from, you know, you go from day to night and the light is so beautiful. And I think, oh, I've been working so long and I'm so tired, but this is such a beautiful life that I get to have. And I feel really grateful for that. And that is not one moment, but it's a lot of moments that I've experienced. That is what I'm talking about. Good job. I think one of the best things that I have in my life is that I feel grateful for what I have every day. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you have a deep gratitude for what you've created. Totally. Yes. There's your success. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Good on you. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? The first one that comes to mind is Teeming with Microbes, which is a book about soil microbiology, which sounds really nerdy, but it really helped me understand sort of the diverse ecosystem, not just above the ground on my farm, but under the ground in the soil. You know, macro and vertebrates are a good sign that you've got these way down there, you know, a diverse range of bacteria in the soil. And I think for any organic grower, soil is really the foundation and really Mm -hmm. for all of our civilization, right? Soil is the foundation. So um, having some sense of what's really going on down there was, is really important to me as a farmer, but also the book itself is, I think, pretty approachable and pretty entertaining. Soil microbiology isn't always the most approachable subject. Yeah, you think? Right. (laughs) (laughs) We recently had Elaine Ingham on our show. Yeah. Yeah. We actually did a podcast with her and then we did a free online webinar. And that was, that was quite fascinating. I've studied this stuff, not deeply, but I've studied soil biology for a good 25 years and I was learning some stuff about what she was sharing. So yeah, she's a guru. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? So I'm going to give you two. One is that I think I want people to know that they can do their dreams. So I think for me, I thought, oh, maybe I'll have a farm in when I'm 45, or maybe I'll have a farm when I'm 60. So that's something I'll do someday. But then when this opportunity to buy this farm came up, I just did it. And I'm really glad that I did because I'm doing the thing that I dreamed of doing now rather than waiting. And so that kind of leads into my next piece of advice somewhat, which is if you're going to do your dreams, you're going to need a really good team. 
And so one thing that I really love about farming and my farming community is that I have a lot of different sources of support. In particular, I'm always amazed at the way other farmers want to collaborate and want to share information. I can't imagine that there's another industry where people who are directly competing with each other are Mm -hmm. so willing to share their trade secrets. Mm And, you know, I just in this is my off season. So I just in the last few weeks have visited like five different farms and talked, shared all kinds of information. And people are so generous and open and willing to share. And not just other farmers, other members of the community, even in my case, you know, there's conventional farmers around that want to, you know, share what they've learned. And I think kind of listening to all these different diverse sources of support and having a diverse community is one of the ways that I've really been able to do all the things that I've been able to do so far. Well, I've said for years that collaboration is really where it's at. You know, how can we collaborate to make all of this work better? I might be competing with some of these other farms, but really like we're all on the same team. And if we're going to have a local food system, if we're going to have an organic food system, we really have to work together. The rest of the food system is way too big and way too powerful for us to not work as a team. Amen to that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Liz. Yeah, you're welcome. It was fun. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? You can always find more information about Owl's Nest Farm on our website, which is owlsnestfarm.com, but there's hyphens in there. So it's owls-nest-farm.com. But we're also on Instagram as just regular old Owl's Nest Farm and on Facebook as Owl's Nest Farm MD because we're in Maryland. Perfect. And I just want to once again acknowledge you for the amazing work that you're doing. It warms my heart for a younger millennial to be doing what you're doing. So congratulations. I love that you're having success and yay you. Thank you. Yeah. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash owls nest farm. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Healthy food is something everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. 
It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.